proposed to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was at hand, and remain by the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come, for the, as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Good morning, everybody. Let's uh, open in a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to God's word. Um, Lord, what a, a privilege to stand before the God whom angels announce over and over again, holy, holy, holy. There's not enough words to describe your holiness. And Lord, you bid us, you call us, make it possible for us to stand before you and delight in you. What a privilege, Lord. I agree with Kyle. That's just more than we can really appreciate in this life. And uh, Lord, we look forward to the time when we will see you as you are. Um, Lord, when we'll be freed from sin and death, uh, from Satan, from enemies, from foes, from tears in our eyes, because you will have wiped them away. Thank you for that, Lord. Father, um, I want to pray for um, Tim Keller's family as he's passed away this, this past week. And Lord, I, I just pray for Kathy and the boys, um, the, the gap that they will feel in their life with their husband and father gone. Uh, Lord, I want to praise you for what you accomplished through Tim Keller in my life and in so many other lives, seeing the outpouring of, of um, gratitude for him all over social media. Lord, we don't get um, men like that in the church very often, and so we appreciate that you have given Tim to us for a time, and um, Lord, I'm grateful that he is resting in the arms of Christ even now. But Lord, he set some things in motion. He, he's cast a, a kind of a vision for what could happen to renew the church and what the church could do in America to regain her footing. And the first one that he mentions, Lord, is revival. And so, Lord, I, I agree with, with uh, Keller on that. We need revival. And so would you revive your church? Would you send your spirit fresh upon the believers throughout this country? And Lord, would you start in our church with me? with us. And Lord, bring us a fresh vision of who Jesus is, a fresh commitment to the commission that he's given us. 
a fresh faith that would know that he can work all things together for our good and for his glory. Lord, have mercy on your church and, and lead us that way, we pray. And Father, to that end, I also want to pray for the church in Manipur in India. Um, she is under severe persecution now from the Hindus, and the government is just turning a blind eye, and the media is ignoring it. And so, Lord, as the church is persecuted there, as, as she is coming under attack, Lord, may that be Satan rallying because he sees that you're about to do an amazing thing there, because he sees you begin to work in the lives and the hearts and the minds of the people. And Lord, I pray that you would be with those saints who are being persecuted and who are suffering. But Lord, would you bring revival to Manipur through this opposition, in spite of this opposition, to show this opposition can't stand against the gospel. Have mercy on them, we pray. And Father, I also want to pray now for the Racies as they prepare to PCS to right pat and, and the next step in their lives together and what you're going to do there lord uh, would you work some miracles on this end as they have some things to tie up um, a house that needs to be finished and sold and um, lord i just pray that uh, you would be with them as they go we're going to miss them severely but we pray your blessing on them because they're your people they're not ours and so use them for your kingdom in um, ohio as well uh, Lord, would you be with us now as we turn to your word again? We thank you that you have given us your word, that you've inscribed it, inspired it, that you have recorded it, inscripturated it, and given it to us throughout history, preserved so well that we can turn to it with confidence and say, this is what the Lord says. So, Lord, we want to hear you this morning. Would you help us to hear and understand? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. My, um, my second child was born... Um, December 20th, 1989, and uh, we were still in the Air Force, out of the Air Force Base, and uh, we were getting ready to be discharged from the hospital, and I got a phone call. They said, hey, the general is coming by, and he wants to wish you Merry Christmas. He's kind of touring the hospital. Stay there. Don't leave. And I'm like, well, I would like to get my wife home, and my son, my one-year-old son is kind of coming unglued and getting into trouble, and they said, no, the general's coming by. He just, just wants to get a picture and say Merry Christmas, and so just stay there. So Lisa was like, I just want to leave. And I was like, yeah, I know, but, you know, two-star general, what are you going to do? Um, so after a while, we hear a knock on the door, and I open the door, and there's General Shepner and a whole bunch of birds behind him. And he comes in, and he's glad-handing in. Hi, how you doing? What's going on? And at one point, he says, so, Sergeant Etherington, did you get all your Christmas shopping done? You got everything you need? And I said, yes, sir, I think I do. And he goes, no, I don't think you do. I remember my reaction was like, what? What are you, who are you, who are you? He says, I think you're missing this. And he slapped a stripe on my shoulder, promoted me on the spot from staff sergeant to tech sergeant. It's called a step promotion. Every year the, the um, base gets a handful of stripes that they can hand out for people. And I got one and it was a total surprise. So General Shepard, you can see the look on his face. He's, he was just tickled that he could do this. And this picture of the, my family at the time was on the next week's front page of the base paper. We got promoted. Um, I'm telling you that not because I'm so, you know, bragging about my, my step promotion. Um, I didn't know that was coming. What had happened was not my boss, but my boss's boss had put me in for a leadership award, which I didn't get. But he thought the package was so strong that he submitted it for the step promotion. Step is strike for exceptional performers. And so it's for people who um, maybe don't test that well, because the way that it worked in those days was you had uh, you got points for um, time in grade, time in service, 
You got points for decorations that you had, any medals that you had, uh, for your performance reports, and then you took two tests. One was general Air Force knowledge and the other was specific to your job. And they would total up those numbers and, and rack and stack you, and that would be who got promoted that year. Well, that year, I was determined I was going to get promoted. Um, I was one of four staff sergeants in the shop, and I had the lowest time in rank or time in grade. And so they, I was the lowest ranking staff sergeant. And I thought the other guys were treating me poorly. I thought they were treating me like an airman, and I didn't like it. And so I was like, I'm going to get promoted. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make tech this time. Well, all that time I spent studying the books got thrown out when he slapped the stripe on my shoulder. So that was kind of a great surprise. Um, there were two reactions to this promotion. Actually, three, but two that I want to call your attention to. Um, my boss, my immediate supervisor, was furious. He was livid because he wasn't involved in the, in the step promotion process. And so he went into the first sergeant's office and demanded that they take it back. He didn't approve it. He didn't think I deserved it. He didn't think I was ready. And he was angry about it. And um, when I, uh, later on, I found out what had happened is he was in the Pacific and he had gotten a step promotion. They had given him it and they said, oh, you're leaving in a couple months and they took it back. So he was bitter because he'd got posed on it. He should have gotten it and didn't. The other one, the one that I think is the hero of this story is there, one of the staff sergeants who treated me poorly was on vacation when all this happened. It was Christmas time. And so I still remember I was standing by the front door of the shop. He walked into the shop and he looked at me and he poked me in my new tech sergeant stripes. And he goes, what's this? And I said, I got step promoted. And he looked at me, our eyes met and he looked at me and he didn't say a word. He turned around and he walked out of the shop. And as soon as he left, I thought, we're going to have to deal with this. If he's going to have a problem with this, we're going to have to deal with it. And I was trying to figure out how do I approach or how do I broach this subject and tell him, dude, I outrank you now, period. He came back probably about a half an hour later. That was it. Didn't have a problem with it. He accepted the fact that I had gotten promoted. I thought that was the most heroic response ever. You know, a lot of other people were happy for me. They were glad that it happened. Um, but this guy, Terry, you could see that it was a shock to him. And it took him some time to process, but he processed it like a professional. And he accepted the fact that I now outranked him. So that was, that was a, a way to see somebody achieve something that you didn't expect them to get. And what we're going to see today in, in chapter 20 here is we're going to see how to respond to the king. Now, that's not saying I'm the king. I just had the one more stripe than the other guy. But how you respond to that kind of thing is important. And, and that's what we're going to see with, um, with uh, Jonathan this morning. So let me summarize. Chapter 20 is way too long. It is, uh, what is it, 42 verses. That's why I had Jonathan just read one little section of it. So uh, we're not going to read the whole thing, but I'll just summarize the story for you. So last week, remember what had happened. Um, Saul said, kill David. Jonathan came to him and said, why? He's only been good. And he says, yeah, okay, don't kill him. And then he went off and tried to kill him anyway. And so once he did, he fled to Naoth, to Samuel. And when Saul showed up in Naoth, he wound up stripping off his clothes and prophesying all night. He just lost his mind there. Um, so where this story picks up, at the beginning of, of chapter 20, uh, picks up right where that left off. It says, and Saul, I'm sorry, and David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? Why is, what is my guilt? 
And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. So David flees to, to Jonathan and he says, what is going on? Your father is trying to kill me. Remember the last thing that Jonathan heard was he confronted his father, why are you trying to kill David? And Saul relented. And so from Jonathan's perspective, he's not gonna kill you, but they, they concoct a plan. We're gonna figure this out. Is he gonna kill me or not? And so the plan is on the feast of the new moon, they will have uh, um, a feast. They'll sit down together with the king and his court and everybody, and David should be there. So what they come up with is this plan. They said, well, David won't be there. David says, tell him I have a feast back in Bethlehem, a sacrifice in Bethlehem with my clan, and I'll go there. So when the new moon feast starts, my seat will be empty. And if Saul is favorably disposed towards me, he'll be, oh, okay, well, you know, that's cool. And if he's not, he'll be angry, and, and that'll be the test. So that's what they agree on. Um, so uh, David is, is, explains that to Jonathan. Jonathan says, okay, well, I'm going to have to send you a signal. And so he takes him out in the field and he says, this is how this is going to work. You hide out in this field and I'll come out and I'll practice some bow and arrow shooting. I'll practice some archery. And when I shoot the arrows, I'll send a young boy out to get them. And if I tell him they're beside you, that means the coast is clear. You can come in. You can pretend that you've come back from Bethlehem. If I shoot beyond and I say, go farther, go fetch them farther, that's a signal to you, get out of here because dad's mad. So that's the plan. That's what they're going to do. So on the first day of the, of the uh, new moon, uh, the, the group assembles in the palace. They sit around at the table and John, Saul looks up and he sees Jonathan, or David's place is empty. And he says to himself, he must be unclean. He must have come across a dead body or had a discharge or something. He must, he must be unclean. That's why he's not here. But on the second day of the feast, he's like, um, where's David? If he was unclean yesterday, he's clean today. Where is he? And so Jonathan tells his father, hey, he asked me leave if I, he could go to Bethlehem and I let him go. And Saul loses it. He just loses his mind. He chucks an arrow at him again. He's, he's big with uh, throwing spears at people. And then Saul's anger was kindled. This is verse uh, 30 says, Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know you've chosen Jesse or the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor the kingdom shall be established. He, he, basically, he just cussed at him, called him a horrible name. Now, I need to pause here for a second. Some people take that and, and read that and think that means that uh, Jonathan and David had a homosexual relationship. And they get that because he says, to your mother's nakedness, and you have chosen the son of Jesse. And so that is like, that's, that's not what that means. And you can tell because there's nothing in there rebu rebuking um, Jonathan's sexuality when he says your, mother, your mother's nakedness. As a matter of fact, what he, he says about his mother, which is pretty shameful, is she's a, a, a rebellious woman. So what he's saying, the way he's cursing him, cursing at him is he's saying, you're being rebellious. The kingdom is threatened and you're siding with your enemy. It, it has nothing to do with, with a sexual relationship. That just is modern sensibilities being read back into the text. So I don't think that's what's going on. His mother's nakedness had nothing to do with him being uh, unfaithful. That had to do with 
his father being exposed and, and being vulnerable and that kind of thing. So that's what's going on there. So Jonathan defends uh, David one more time. He says, why? What has he done to you? And that's when Saul hurled the spear at him, funk. So David or Jonathan gets up and the next morning he goes out to the field to let David know what's going on. This would be the third day of the feast. And so he takes a young boy with him. He goes out, he shoots the arrows and he says, they're beyond you, go, hurry, run. Don't stay, get out quick. So he tells David, not only are you in danger, you're really in danger, you need to flee right away. And so the, um, the boy returns with the arrow and uh, the arrows and Jonathan sends him back to the city. And as soon as he's back, he leaves, uh, David comes out of hiding and talks to Jonathan. And, and they, they agree and they kiss and they leave. And David is now gonna be on the lamb. So why the deception? Why shooting arrows and, and having kids run out and all of that? Why not just meet in a field and talk to him? Well, because David is supposed to be in Bethlehem. So this is a way to protect for Jonathan to protect himself is nobody is going to be there. So he can go out and he can start shooting and then he can see, is anybody around that's going to see this? Well, the only person around was the little kid and it said the kid knew nothing and he left. So then it was safe for David to come back out. So that's why he has this deception going on is, is to protect himself and to alert David and to carry on the deception against um, Saul from the beginning. Um, so the boy, it says, no, nothing about it. And as soon as the boy had gone, David arose from where he, the stone heap was and he fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed each other and wept uh, with one another, David weeping the more. And then Jonathan recites their pact again. And that's the end of the story. So. 42 verses, there's repetition because they explain what they're going to do. They repeat it when they do it. Why is the chapter so long and what's going on here? Um, I, I think in one of the Bibles I looked at, the title of this section was David Flees. David is not the main character in this chapter. Jonathan is. Every scene in this chapter, Jonathan is present. He's got a role to play in every single scene in this, in this uh, story. This is about Jonathan. And the other way you can tell this is about Jonathan is the name Yahweh, the Lord, is mentioned 12 times. Jonathan says 10 of them. David says two. David does some speaking. Jonathan does most of the speaking. This is about Jonathan. So what we're seeing is we've got to look at the story from Jonathan's perspective. We've got to see it from his eyes. And so when you look at it from his perspective, what I think is going on is I think it's beginning to dawn on Jonathan the kingdom is not coming to me. Now, you remember when he, when, when David slew Goliath and he came to Jonathan and that's when they made their pack and they were uh, hugging each other and they, their souls were in it together. Uh, Jonathan took off his robe and his armor and his, and his gear and gave it to him. And at the time I said, it's kind of like he's transferring his inheritance to him, but I don't think he knew that at the time. I think what's going on is Saul is the only one at this point who realizes that David is a legitimate live threat to the throne. And, it, and at the beginning, it just looked like paranoia. He's just lost it. He's nuts. David's not a threat. Look at what David's doing. He's defeating all his enemies. That's a great thing. Um, but as Saul's mental state deteriorates and David continues to succeed, I think it's beginning to dawn on Jonathan. This is the future king. The kingdom is not going to continue. Dad's going to blow this. And the reason I say that is a couple of things. In, in verse 13, he says, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. How has the Lord been with his father? As the king, 
may the Lord be with you as king as he has been with my father, the king. So I think that's one clue. The other one comes in verse 15. He says, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. If Jonathan was stood to inherit the kingdom, he would not look at David and say, don't cut off your steadfast love for me. He would say, I will not cut off my steadfast love from you. I will be good to you because I'm going to be the next king. So this makes me think Jonathan gets it. It's, it's slowly dawned on him. It took some time, but now he recognizes Jonathan is, is not going to inherit the throne. It's going to go to David. And, and he sees that for a number of reasons, a bunch of different things. So when we look at this story from, from Jonathan's perspective, um, what we see is he's looking to David and he's acknowledging him and he's, he's pleading for help. So the part that Jonathan read for us, um, part of it start, begins in verse 12. And, and Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I've sounded out my father about this time, if it's well, I'll let you know. If not, I'll let you know. He later says, when God takes out all your enemies, who is his enemy at this point? Saul. He, I, I, this is just really weighty for him to look at David and say, when God kills my father and you take the throne, remember me. And, and that term steadfast love is really important. That's hesed. You've heard that before. It means steadfast love is a good translation. It means covenant faithfulness. It means um, um, a, a resolution to be with this person, that kind of thing. So Jonathan and David are best friends. And he says, if I live, here's a little foreshadowing for you, kind of intimidating. If I live, show your steadfast love to me. So that's, that's his, his take on it. So essentially what happened here is David got a step promotion. Um, he didn't get a stripe on the sleeve. He got a crown on his head. So how does Saul respond to the step promotion? He right? so responded the way my boss did. He's terrified. He's angry. He's bitter about it. How does Jonathan respond? Jonathan responds better than the other guy, the other staff sergeant, because he delights in it. He's happy about it. So this is welcoming the king. This is how do you welcome a king? And Jonathan is a really good example of that for us. Now, this is one of those places where if you go, well, David is kind of like Jesus, it breaks down. It doesn't work because Jesus didn't need anybody to go sound out his enemies and find out if they were enemies. He understood. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 2, it says, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he did no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what is in man. So the parallel breaks down. David didn't know. They had to figure it out. Does that mean we just have to throw out the whole David as Christ in this? I don't think so. What we need to do is handle it very carefully. If you step back a notch and say, it's not David. David's not the, the image of Christ. It's the king of Israel. And so when you acknowledge the king of Israel, when you see the true and the real king of Israel, how should you respond? And I think Jonathan is a wonderful example to us of that. So for example, he submits to the king. In verse four, he, Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. He submits to the king, whatever you say. So let's figure this thing out and, and I'll do whatever you ask. He even acknowledges that he won't reign. He, he says, he's probably up to this point thinking, well, I'm gonna inherit the throne. But when David shows up, he's not bitter about it. He's not, he totally is okay with him inheriting the throne. So what he says to him is verse 15, don't cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. 
you're going to be the one in charge and I'm good with that. Just be good to me. I want to be on your side. So he acknowledges that he's not going to reign. He prays for the king's success. He says, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. I, I want you to succeed. Let me pray for you. May the Lord give you success in all that you do. I, I want you to be the successful king. He recognizes, and this is really, this is where I, I think it, it, the picture of Jesus really stands out. He recognizes that God's love will come through David. Because what he says is he says, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. You, David, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. How? Do not cut off your steadfast love for me in the house. He recognizes that God's has said, God's covenant love is going to flow through the king, and he wants to be part of that. that. That's what it means to stand before the legitimate, the right king of Israel, is you'll receive his has said. And then he, he pleads for mercy in the judgment. He says, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. When Jesus returns and all of the enemies of Jesus are cut off from the face of the earth, which side do you want to be on? We're going to look to Jesus and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Don't cut me off. So that's, that's what it means to be on the side of the king, to approach the king. And then finally, he loves the king. He's, he's not looking at this just as an economic, what can I get out of this? He, he actually loves the king. He loved him as his own soul, verse 17. And he couldn't fathom from, from last chapter um, how it is that his father could not love the king. So in verse 2, he says, what has David ever done to you? Chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, what has David ever done to you? He can't, it doesn't enter his brain. Father, why are you angry at David? I love him. I love him like my own soul. He is a wonderful king. Why are you angry? Why don't you love him? And so it, it's just unimaginable to him that his father wouldn't love the king. But the way that it plays out, Saul is just bent. He's, he's totally against him. There's no way back for Saul. He's going to oppose the king at every opportunity. So this is where we can come back and say, well, how does this teach us about Jesus? What does that lead us to in, in, in meeting Jesus? Well, Jesus is the Messiah. And I've said this before, Messiah is for anointed. And what David is going to call King Saul is the anointed, God's anointed. Anointed means king. So when you think of Jesus as Messiah, remember, he's your king. How do you respond to a king? How do you meet a king? How do you meet a king who has dethroned you? I used to be in charge of my life. Before I became a Christian, I remember somebody was witnessing to me, and I was like, ah, I'm not interested because I kind of like doing what I'm doing, and I don't want to know. Because I knew what he meant, which was, if I acknowledge Jesus as a king, I don't get to do what I want. I got to do what the king says. And I was afraid that that meant I wouldn't have as much fun. You can't understand until you're there. You just can't get it. It's not a losing proposition. But how do I approach the king then? How do I come to the king? Well, the first thing I have to do is lay down my right to the throne. I'm, I'm not in charge. I'm not the right person to be in charge. As a matter of fact, I've seen what happens when I'm in charge, and it ain't good. Would you come and be my king? I'm waiting for you. I'm, I'm, I'm anticipating you. You submit to the king. You say, Lord, your way. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You do it. 
I'm going to follow you because you know what's better. And so you have to be willing to submit. You have to acknowledge that he will reign over you, that this is, this is the role. Jesus is not here to be tacked onto my life, to make another little portion of my life fit a little bit better. He's here to reign over top of me. He gets it all. And that is part of that submission. We should often be praying for the king's success like Jonathan did. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. He taught us to say, Lord, you, everything you do, we want that to be successful. We should be praying for our king. Lord, would you come? Would you come and reign? Lord, would you have uh, authority over all these things on the earth? We want to see it more fully. But the real thing, the, the part that drives all of this, that makes all this possible, is you should love the king. You won't follow someone you don't love. You might follow them for a while if you fear them. I heard of recently of somebody who's in charge of a group of people and they just yell. And they just terrorize everybody. How long do you think that's going to last? The people aren't going to, you only get so much out of people if you yell at them. But if they see you, if they connect with you and they love you, they'll follow you off a cliff. They'll go, whatever, they'll go the extra mile for you. So when Jesus is our king, when he's reigning, we shouldn't be in servile fear going, oh, he's going to zap me if I don't pay attention. We should be loving him, saying, this is, this is the right king. That's Jonathan's attitude towards David. Is he looks and he says, my dad should, surely shouldn't be on the throne. And even when he looks at himself, he said, I shouldn't be on the throne. David, David is the one. Lord, be with him. So that, that's the attitude we have to have is, is to love the king, to say this is best that you're in charge. It, it's more perfect. It's more beautiful that you're running things and I'm not. And then you can submit, and then you can pray, and then you can follow and do all of those things. So in that way, see, this is where we got to be careful with finding Jesus in the Old Testament, is we could go ham-handed and say, you know, swap one for one David with him. And then we wind up into a problem because David didn't know what was going to happen. He had to go find out. Well, Jesus knows. He, he knew what was going to happen to him. He was fully aware. He told his disciples a number of times, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified in three days. I'm going to rise. David could never say anything like that. Um, so that's the care we have to take is look at the role, not the person. And I think that's probably what Saul's biggest problem is, is he's looking at the role of the king of Israel and identifying it with his person. If you oppose me, you're not opposing me, you're opposing the king of Israel. And, and that's not acceptable. The king has authority, the king has power, the king has privilege, and that's the way it is. So that's why I think he sees David as a threat, is you're opposing me. And David's not opposing him. David, we're going to see through the rest of the book, David does not oppose him. He refuses to take his life. In, in the cave, he cuts off a corner of his robe. He could have cut off his throat. And so he's not going to do that. He's not a threat to him. But he is the rightful king, and, and at the right time, he'll be ascended to the throne. So when you meet Jesus, when, when you think of Jesus as your savior, look at him as the king. Reflect on how Jonathan responded and, and think, am I, is, is my attitude towards my king that way? Do I feel threatened that he's going to tell me what to do in my life? Or should I just go with whatever you say I will do? And the only way you get there is by knowing that king well enough to say, I love him. I trust him. I know what he's going to do is right. As good as David was, 
he wasn't perfect. He, he wasn't without error. With Jesus, we have numerous scriptures that tell us he was without sin. And he can do that, and he can be trusted. So that's, the, I think, the picture, long, long chapter, all to make this point. Jonathan has submitted to the real king of Israel and is just waiting for him to ascend to the throne. We have submitted to the real king of Israel of the whole world, and we're waiting for him to come and establish his kingdom. That's where we're at in redemptive history with this. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus,